Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Men Talk, where men talk about miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility. Today's guest, we have Rhett Smith. Rhett, the floor is yours. Feel free to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you're from and your background and, and your story, and we'll go from there. Hey, I'm Rhett Smith. Grew up in small town of Union, South Carolina. Um, went to Clemson, or sorry, went to college at Clemson University. Um, shortly after that, I started working down here in Columbia, South Carolina, and that's where I met my wife, Brittany. Um, she's a Gamecock fan, but nobody hold that against her. <laughs> so I guess from a, from an infertility and infant loss standpoint, and sorry, just as background, we, we met in 2013. We dated for, I guess, close to two years before we got engaged and, and got married in, uh, sorry, September 4th of 2016. Uh, I'll say neither one of us were ever the type of person that had to have a baby or was super excited. I won't say not excited about having children. I think we both always knew that we wanted to have children, but we were never in a hurry. Um, we were always glad to visit with babies. We loved to hold babies, love to play with babies, also love to give them back to their parents. Um, but after we got married and I believe Brittany's cousin, you know, she was pregnant with her second child. And shortly after Brittany and I got married, my, we found out my sister was pregnant with uh, my second nephew. And I think that's when the desire really started to hit both of us. So we started trying on our own, not knowing anything about, you know, any type of infertility or any challenges we would face down the road in March of 2017. And we tried on our own for, it was close to a year. Um, and I think, you know, naively, I just kept thinking, you know, well, the, all the conditions aren't right. We're just not timing everything right. We just keep trying. It's going to happen. Um, so once we hit that year mark, we were concerned and we wanted to visit with the, the regular OB and kind of see if there were any suggestions or tips they have for us, anything you know, where they could point us in the right direction. Uh, long story short, we ended up going through, I think, three rounds of 50 milligrams of Clomid, which in and of itself can be a challenge. It's a, you know, hormonal manipulator to try to give you a better success, a better chance of success and trying naturally. So we went through three rounds of 50 milligrams, three rounds of 100 milligrams. Um, during all that time, we found out that my wife had what we thought at the time was a mild case of endometriosis. And so during that period, she had an ablation surgery, which is where they go in and they burn out the affected tissue in hopes that that will suppress the pain and any side effects and any um, infertility challenges that causes. So it was good at relieving the pain. However, we didn't see any success increase in uh, from a fertility standpoint so 
I think we had already made up in our mind by the time we ran our 100 milligram cycles of Clomid that we would be seeking out the opinion of a fertility clinic. And so in, I want to say, the July to August timeframe of 2019, we visited our first fertility clinic. And before we had discussed all these different options, you know, how far would we go when it came to trying to have a child? And I think what we said in the beginning was we would do anything up to IVF. And I think that was because we had heard horror stories about IVF. I think things like the, um, gosh, I can't think of the, the name of the condition where you're going through a stem cycle trying to produce more eggs, but o- ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, things like that. I think um, IVF in past years was, and that's not to say it's not uh, a rigorous and tumultuous thing to go through today, but I think it, it has a really bad rap from prior years where they weren't nearly as knowledgeable about how to prevent some of these types of things. So we had said we would do anything up to IVF, but we would not do IVF. You know, we considered things like IUI and obviously other types of uh, hormonal drug therapies to try to help us get pregnant. So when we went to this IVF clinic, um, I think their their story to us was basically, okay, uh, looking at what you've been through and you know, uh, the, the amount of time that you've been trying, we think your best course of action is IVF. It's definitely the highest success rate. If you look at IUI and if you look at hormonal-based uh, drug therapies and trying naturally, the success rates are just much lower. So if you're looking to start a family in as quick a manner as possible, we recommend IVF. And they gave us some facts and figures um, and said, basically, you know, with your age, with you know, looking at your blood work and your levels after, I believe it was three cycles. They said you basically have a 99.9% chance of conceiving and having a baby. So, you know, even though we had previously said, all right, IVF is our limit, uh, we changed our minds in the office that very day and said, all right, we're, we're going to go the IVF route. Whoa. So, <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, I, I think just by eye contact and listening to what the doctor said, he was very reassuring. He, you know, made it sound like we're going to make this work. It's not a matter of how many children you or it's sorry. It's not a matter of if you're going to have a child. It's a matter of how many children do you want? So I think just through eye contact and unconscious body signals, we knew probably halfway through the conversation that this is something we were open to. And that was confirmed by the time we, you know, we got out to the car and we started talking about it and said, hey, if you're open to this, you know, I'm willing to go this route. I think this is something that we should pursue, not should pursue. But if you're comfortable, um, I feel like we can have success with this. And she was thinking along the same line. So um we started then and there kind of prepping for our first IVF cycle and getting ready for the retrieval. I think they discovered um, my wife had a couple of polyps and that was kind of devastating to us. You know, anything to push out that timeline of having a child uh, when you're so far in is something that 
is going to hit you emotionally. And, you know, I, I remember her calling me crying one day, even though it was only going to be a month pushed out. Um, but she had a surgery for polyp removal and we had our first retrieval. And I can't remember the exact egg count. I believe it was around 15. Um, but we were very blessed in all of this because I believe the very same year that we decided to pursue IVF, the company that I worked for introduced a fertility benefit. And Incredible. so, yeah, basically what it was, was, you know, there was a lifetime maximum on the benefit, but it covered everything throughout the entire process of IVF. And, um, you know, that, that includes drug treatments, that includes the, the retrieval, that includes subsequent transfers. So we were incredibly blessed in that aspect. And I think that's one thing that, um, you know, that, that's one thing that I will say throughout this whole process, we have not had to worry financially. And I can't imagine the people who are going through IVF and you have to worry with all the, um, sorry, the emotional burden coupled with everything financially, because I know what an expense it can be if you don't have that type of coverage. Um, so we decided to go through with the, I think it's PGA or I think sometimes called PGT. Anyway, it's a pre-genetic testing for each of the embryos that made it to a certain day. So we ended up with six day five blastocysts and decided to go through with the pre-genetic testing. And what we found was we had four confirmed um, chromosomally normal embryos. We had one that was chromosomally abnormal and one where they just didn't get enough uh, sample to really make a determination. Um, so after that, I believe we started, we had our first transfer uh, mid-December of 2019. And we found out on Christmas Eve, December 24th of 2019, that uh, we had basically a chemical pregnancy and that uh, we had lost our first baby. And I will tell you, I, I am normally, I'm, by nature, I'm a very upbeat, I'm a very positive person. Um, but that loss, I probably the most raw pain I've ever felt in my life to the point of physical pain from an emotional standpoint it, it, that's as close as I can describe it is actually feeling physical pain in my body from an emotional loss um, and after that you know it it took us a while to rebuild and the challenges that you face with that type of loss from a marital standpoint and from a husband and wife. And, you know, this is, this is a podcast that's reaching out to men. And oftentimes I think that we as men are faced with two burdens where we don't only face the burden of losing the opportunity to become fathers, but 
with the amount of hormones and you know the stress that it puts our uh, our wives' bodies under and the mental agony that they're going through. I think oftentimes, and I can definitely say this for myself, I'm more worried about losing my wife than I am losing the opportunity to become a father. Um, if I have to choose between Brittany and having a child, I will choose Brittany every time. Um, I chose her in life as my partner. You know, we said our wedding vows and I meant every word and I love her way more than the potential thought of being a father. And I don't, it, it's a delicate balance when talking about that subject because I don't want her to feel like that means my desire for children is any less. Um, of course, I want to be a father. It's just that she is more important to me than becoming a father. And that will always be true. Um, so that as a quick interlude, moving on from there, we, we had our second transfer. Um, it must have been around the March time frame. Let me make sure I'm thinking about this right. I, it was either February or March of 2020. Uh, this one started out, the, the HCG, the initial test was extremely low. I think the HCG level was like an eight. And they looked for anything 25 or over as being a, a sign of a, a good positive. You know, HCG levels can vary wildly. It can be, I guess, as low as 25 and as high as 500. Um, and all those can indicate a positive, you know, it's just different women, uh, different chemical levels in the body can indicate different things. But we started off with an eight, um, and that eight just kept doubling in the timeline that they said that it should have. So we were incredibly encouraged by that, and we thought we had made it at this point. And, you know, shortly after our first um, ultrasound, or sorry, our first ultrasound, our doctor told us that everything seemed to be a little bit behind and that he thought it might just be an empty gestational sac. And obviously we were heartbroken at that point, but we were still hopeful. You know, we prayed every night, every day, probably multiple times a day. I'm sure multiple times a day uh, for this baby. And our second ultrasound, we got to see a heartbeat. And that's a point we had never made it to before. So you can imagine the joy, but, you know, we were quickly, we had our expectations tempered by the doctor saying that everything was still just a little bit behind. And his expectation was that this pregnancy would eventually come to an end in loss. Yeah, so and unfortunately, oh, I appreciate that. Um, it, at eight weeks, that's exactly what happened. Uh, we had our an eight-week miscarriage, and as hard as the first chemical pregnancy loss was, I, I think this one was much worse um, because just to physically see everything and, and what happened and, again, the emotional and the physical distress that my wife underwent was 
almost unbearable. Um, you know, and I think one of the things we found out as a result of this second miscarriage is that my wife and I have very different coping mechanisms. And I think that's one thing that's very important is you have to cope how you naturally cope as a person because I think I am much more of a, you know, I I need a sense of community. I need to talk with people about things. Whereas my wife is more of a private person and needs to just keep it internal and needs to be alone and process her feelings that way. And there's nothing wrong with either of those, whether you need to talk about it and you need to be around family and friends, as in my case, or you need to be by yourself. Um, I think it's just important to find the best way for you to process your emotions and to process them in that manner. And it's okay to be different from your spouse in that regard. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that that has to cause conflict. Um, you know, I, I can just think of several conversations that we had where, you know, my, my nature to be around family and to be around events and be around, you know, other people that were going through pregnancy and finding success, you know, maybe that meant that it didn't affect me as much as my wife, which simply was not the case. It, I think it was just my nature as a, as a more social coper, um, you know, put, put me in that position, but moving forward from that, uh, you know, we were able to get through that and we brought back up my, my wife's endometriosis condition and asked, you know, could that still be a factor? Well, endometriosis typically occurs outside the uterus. And so what we were told is, you know, essentially that should not be a factor. We don't think that's a factor in an IVF scenario because IVF, um, you know, you're, you're going straight into the womb, you know, you're, you're bypassing everything that endometriosis should affect. But that being said, uh, the doctor did decide to try um, a round of something called Lupron, which is basically a, a, an estrogen suppressant. And by starving the body of estrogen, uh, estrogen is the hormone that feeds endometriosis. And so the idea was to take this injection to start the body of estrogen for, I think it was a period of three months, and then to give IVF another shot. Um, because at this time, we still had two confirmed good genetically tested embryos, and we had one where you know, we weren't sure. So basically, uh, this Lupron I think hormonally hit my wife harder than any of the other medications, you know, even the, 
um, the progesterone with the injection. She has a very bad reaction to those, but this Lupron, it was on another level. I think she felt terrible for three straight months and her body had every adverse reaction that the doctor said should not be happening. And I also think this is the point where we kind of started to feel, uh, I guess, not understood or not heard by the particular fertility clinic that we were dealing with at the time, because it kind of seemed that we were just brushed aside with any concern that we would prevent. You know, they would say, all right, with this Lupron, you should not bleed. You should not do X. You should not do Y. You should not do Z. So immediately my wife started bleeding. I mean, every condition they told her she shouldn't experience while on Lupron, she experienced. But anytime we went back to them with, hey, this is something that, you know, where we're deviating from the norm of what you told us we should expect, their response was always, oh, well, don't worry about it. You know, let's just treat this like it's normal. And if things get worse, then give us a call back. And when things get worse, uh, we, we would basically get the same response. It was just didn't seem like it was ever enough to warrant their attention or any further investigation into the matter. So I think that was a source of frustration with us. Um, around the time of our, I guess it would have been our four year wedding anniversary. Uh, this was August, September timeline of 2020. We had our third embryo transfer. And this time we decided to transfer two embryos, one that was uh, confirmed genetically good and one where they weren't able to obtain a good enough sample. And the thought was from time to time that, you know, it's possible that just that extra embryo in there can give the body enough chemical signaling to you know, hold on to the pregnancy, that that additional hormone release, I guess, you know, additional progesterone, whatever the body produces can say, hey, let, let, let's keep this pregnancy going. Um, I think my wife, by this point, she was very in tune with her body and knew what to expect as far as feelings from pregnancy or a lack thereof. So very quick into this transfer, I think she knew without a shadow of a doubt she was pregnant and that was confirmed because we always, and who doesn't, uh, we cheat and we take home pregnancy tests before we go get a blood pregnancy test. And, you know, I, I think this was the situation where she, she had no fear from it. She, she took the home test and had a very strong positive before we ever went to get our blood test. And, Sure enough, the blood test came back with an extremely high, you know, from the second uh, IVF transfer where we started out with an HCG level of eight, this one was over 500. And I think at that point, we both felt like, okay, we've made it. You know, this one doesn't seem to be lagging behind. The HCG levels are extremely high. Um, we're going to make it through this one. However, the very next visit, uh, the levels were not doubling in the time frame that they expected them to. And we tried to remain positive. You know, we prayed that, 
you know, if, if anything had happened that we had maybe lost one of the embryos and not both of them and that the HCG levels just weren't rising as high as a result of that. But I think the visit after that, the level started dropping and mm. this is another chemical pregnancy. So <laughs> at this point, the, the frustration and the heartbreak really sets in and you wonder is this just a vicious cycle that we're never going to escape and again i'll say this has been the biggest challenge as husband and wife and you know letting Brittany understand that i'm in this marriage for her and if we never have our own child that that's okay and that she is my partner regardless and that I love her again more than the expectation or the potential of being a father while at the same time that not decreasing my desire to be a father um so again we moved on again we we discussed with the doctor the potential of endometriosis being a factor. And so he referred us to another doctor in the same group. And we started traveling up to Greenville to speak with the guy that I guess they considered in the group, the authority on endometriosis. And a couple of tests later confirmed that endometriosis was, was still present in my wife's body despite the earlier ablation surgery and that maybe something called excision uh, was the way to go where they literally cut out the affected tissue and tried to remove endometriosis as a factor altogether. Um, so again, we had high hopes. We were, it, I think it was refreshing for us to be around a different doctor and to get a different perspective rather than, you know, let's, let's just try again. It could be something wrong with the embryo. I think we were tired of the, let's just try again. And we wanted someone else's opinion. We wanted, you know, someone else to, I guess the, the answer we wanted was that there are other factors, which obviously there are. Um, so in January of 2021, my wife and I, uh, traveled to North Carolina to have an excision surgery. And I guess a couple hours into the surgery, they gave me a call and said, Hey, everything's going well, but we found a lot more disease than initially expected. Um, so it, it's going to be a little while. And when I spoke with the surgeon after, and he was great, he gave me a very detailed recording of all the findings, but to make a long story short, what we initially thought was a mild stage one case of endometriosis turned out to be a very severe stage three, where endometriosis uh, and the disease tissue that it causes affected basically my wife's entire pelvic region. And we were told by that surgeon that because of that, you know, we, we should have never had the expectation that we would be able to get pregnant naturally and that IVF would have been our only course of action. Um, 
So again, even though endometriosis is not supposed to play a factor as much with IVF, I think we were still encouraged by the amount of disease that the the surgeon was able to remove. And we felt confident about this fourth transfer, even though it was our last embryo. Um, and so I guess, it, again, it was probably the March, April timeframe of 2021. We had our fourth and final transfer. And everything about this transfer and about the subsequent blood tests uh, was textbook. You know, this, and for the first time, everything was textbook. We had the perfect levels of HCG. We had, you know, on our first ultrasound, everything was great. We saw a heartbeat. Um, everything <laughs> measured exactly how it was supposed to measure. The heartbeat strong. Um, but two days later, on Mother's Day of 2021, we miscarried and we lost our fourth and final baby. And I think at that point, neither of us knew where to turn. Um, I think sometimes I think that our faith is the only thing that kept us going. Um, we both know that we serve a God that has a greater plan in mind than either of us can imagine. And a lot of times I think that that's all we have. Um, and, and right now we don't know what the greater plan is and what the purpose in our pain is, but we do know that there's one out there and we've talked about it several times. And I think we both agree that, if we can help other people going through the same process, if we can be an ear to listen or a shoulder to cry on, um, or if we can turn other people to God or allow other people to keep their faith while going through something like this, if we can be an example um, to even one couple, to even one man, uh, I think it's worth it. So again, we, we don't know what the purpose is right now. I think ultimately down the road, we'll discover it and we keep looking for it. And we are currently with um, our second fertility clinic and we've had good results with, um, good results with the retrieval. And so we're, we're hoping to go a more natural route this time. We're hoping to not introduce so many hormones uh, because I think I mentioned earlier, my wife did have not the best reaction to progesterone basically makes her feel like she has the flu. Um, and just, you know, from, from the feelings that she has when we have to administer the progesterone injections, I think she stated before, if, if my body feels this way on these drugs, I don't feel like it's a good environment for me to carry a baby. And so we're hoping to go the more natural route. Uh, we're praying over it. We are hoping that we are not trying to, you know, ruin God's plan with our human intervention and continue to pray that if this is uh, the wrong route that we're taking, that there will be some type of intervention and we'll know. Um, but 
again, that's where we are currently with our journey. I will say that this Facebook group, Daniel, I think you're doing a wonderful thing because I don't think there are enough resources out there for men. I think, as you and I talked about earlier, a lot of times men don't know where to turn. We're kind of silent sufferers in this whole process. And I know I, as a man, a lot of times I will feel almost a sense of guilt in my suffering because I know I'm suffering from an emotional aspect, but at the same time, I know Brittany is suffering from an emotional and a physical aspect. And I also know that I, as a man, can never feel the feelings that she has as a woman. And I don't have that physical connection that she has to um, our babies when she gets pregnant and that loss. I know as bad as it hurts me, that it hurts her worse. And, you know, it's, it's a never ending cycle of hurt because I hurt for Brittany as much as I hurt for me. And so again, I, as a man and not being the best communicator or not always knowing what to say to my wife, there are times when I feel lost and I need that sense of community. You know, my wife is wonderful. I'm so blessed to have her. I love her. Um, sometimes I need perspectives from other people and from other men. I, I, you know, I need to talk to my dad. I need to talk to my cousin. I need to talk to my friends and explain to them what's going on. And it, I'll tell you what, one of the things that's just been such a blessing to me is you know, I have a cousin that I've been very close to. We've had more of a brother relationship throughout our whole lives and he knows what's going on. And, you know, sometimes I can't even respond to texts or I can't answer phone calls from him. And I know a lot of people would get upset at that and they would probably just quit trying to communicate, but I, again, I can't tell you how blessed I feel that he'll just reach out and he'll tell you, you know, I love you guys. I know you're going through a lot. Um, if you ever need me, just reach out when we're together, you know, he'll, he'll say, if you want to talk about it, I'm here to talk about it. You know, we, we don't have to run it in the ground. We don't have to, you know, spend all our time talking about it, but if you need an ear to listen, I'm here. So that willingness to continue to reach out and just to let me know that we're loved and we're appreciated and we're part of the family. I, I think that means more than anything else. And again, uh, to, to go back to what you're doing, Daniel, the sense of community, I think it's so important to to know that you're not alone and to not only have a sense of community with people that have gone through it and have made it through to the other side and, and now have children of their own, but also to be in this with other men who are actively going through it and to be able to give and receive words of encouragement and prayers and good vibes and everything that, you know, others can provide. 
I think that's great. And I am very thankful for it. So again, appreciate everything you're doing to try to give men a sense of belonging, a sense of community. Um, when oftentimes we feel we don't have one. Right. Really. Thank you so much for sharing your story. There, there's so much really in your story that's really inspiring in the triumph and, 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 you know, with everything that you did, the new faith that you had, that you kept praying and the, through, through the miscarriages, through the IVF cycle, trying being there for, for Brittany. I mean, it's unbelievable. The fact they were able to, to carry, carry on through this. So I really thank you for sharing your story. I do have a bunch of questions. I mean, your story is, it, it has so much in there. I'm curious to know at the beginning, you said, you didn't want to do IVF. Um, what was it that that stopped that? What was was the fear? Was it surfing the web? Because I hear a lot of guys say, one thing that I really tell a lot of couples and specifically my friends is that don't go down the rabbit hole of, of, of the web because the web <laughs> has a lot of information. Was, was it the web that, that caused that, that fear? Yeah, so I, I think the web has been a big stigma throughout the entire infertility process, just in terms of misdiagnosing ourselves. Um, but I don't even know that we had done a lot of research into the IVF process on the web prior to um, going through IVF talks. I I think it was just a stigma. It was just hearsay. You know, it, it wasn't even where we were specifically trying to look up information about IVF because we ever thought that was something we might have to pursue. It's just things that you that you hear growing up. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it. I, I don't know. That that's a great question, Daniel. Uh, because again, I I don't think either one of us had done much research into it. I, th- I think it was just hearsay, you know, whether it was a television program here or there, or, you know, m- maybe it was a, an article well read on the web. And I do know that that can be a dangerous thing when you're looking into something like this, you know, not taking a professional medical opinion and instead trying to do your own research. Um, it can be a dangerous and it can be a discouraging thing, but I, at this point, I'm very thankful that we did decide to change our mind and and go the route we've gone. I feel like we're in a much better place today than we were you know, five years ago. Isn't it incredible how, even though you've had these these these, I, I don't like calling them failures, but miscarriages and losses as part of the process, it 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 brings you stronger together as a couple. It sounds like you guys are doing an incredible job communicating. So many times I hear that men keep this silent and their relationships with their spouses just go downhill. So I'm really, really impressed that you're able to, to communicate that so well. What, what was it like for you going through the IVF rounds and, and, and having, having these miscarriages? Was there a lot going through your mind? You know, I don't know if she was at the clinic when it happened. Um, but when you were there, what, what was going through your mind? It definitely an emotionally 
devastating thing. And I think one of the things that hurts us sometimes is I think we all know that men are not the best verbal communicators. We tend to internalize and bottle up a lot of things, but I heard it mentioned recently that the more, the more you talk about something, the more you talk about an emotion, the more it gives you power over it. And that's something I know I need to get better about. You know, I think my wife's told me several times, I wish you would express yourself more to me. And I get that. Um, but again, we have very different coping styles. My, my emotions tend to hit in pockets, I think. And so I will literally have moments where I will buckle against the wall and just break down into uncontrollable sobs. And, you know, my, <laughs> a lot of times my wife's not here for that. She doesn't see that. Um, but at the same time, I, I do have very real emotional responses and seeing her pain and seeing her throughout the miscarriages and knowing how it affects her mentally and physically, it, it will destroy you. Um, I think I mentioned somewhere through the podcast that by nature, I'm very, I'm a very upbeat, I'm typically positive. Um, but going through this, going through miscarriages, it at times has beat me into the ground and there's a very real sense of hopelessness, but I know that's not something I can maintain. I know that's not something that I can, that I can't stay in the whole long term. Um, me as a person, I have to have a sense of determination. And so I think sometimes my periods of grief seem too short lived to my wife, but that is my way of carrying on. You know, I have to have, I have to find a sense of determination. I have to have my period of grief and then say, all right, we're going to beat this thing. We're going to move on. We're, we're going to make it through it. And I think that's my way of, you know, trying to push through and <laughs> trying to keep us going. Um, again, spiritually, I don't think this would be possible without god without belief in a higher power and you know I'm, I'm not trying to discourage anyone who feels differently but to me our our faith and our belief i think has proved a pivotal factor in getting both of us through this experience yeah absolutely i'm the same way and i'm I, <laughs> i'm a religious jew living in israel so my faith definitely played an important role in that. I'm curious to know what about your faith? I know obviously you were very optimistic. Is there a special prayer that you would recite? Is there is there a special thing that you would do in order to to keep up the hope, to keep up the prayers for it? What what was the what was that journey like on on the spiritual side of things to keep that optimism going? I think at first it was prayers that every transfer would work, that our baby would be healthy, that it would stay healthy, that, um, you know, my, my wife would be able to sustain the pregnancy. I think it's evolved over time. 
to not just include us, but to include others that are going through this and to pray that this is the right route for us to take that to pray that there is purpose behind this and to lead us down the correct route and to help us minister to others. So I think where I'm not going to call it a selfish prayer because it's not selfish at all. Um, It's, you know, wanting to raise a child, wanting to give a child back to God. Um, But I think the prayer has expanded to say, you know, keep us healthy help these transfers to work, help us to know we're going the right route. If there's anything we're doing that's displeasing or not in your plan for our lives, uh, you know, take us out of it. You know, we, we can be humbled. We can understand that we're not doing the right thing and, and we can go another route if we need to. Well. I'm really, really glad you shared that because all those things are, are, are so true. And those are definitely things that were worthwhile praying for, especially on, on your journey. And it definitely seems to have helped you. What, um, what, I guess I'm, I'm looking at, at the big picture here and your story is definitely very moving. It's bringing me to tears, you know, hearing about it. Um, but how did you, when, when the first miscarriage happened and then the second and you're in there and you found out everything is going so well and Brittany needed to have a procedure to, to take care of, <clears throat> to take care of the andrometeosis. What, how did you stand, like, you were you allowed in in the room when that was happening? Were you on the sidelines? I know you obviously you said that that um you want she comes first, so putting yeah so first. yeah i I've definitely tried to maintain as active a role throughout this whole process as I possibly can to let her know that she's not alone, and I know. You know, sometimes emotionally, she will still feel alone. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier because of the different ways that we cope with things. But whether it is a major surgery or it is a blood test to determine what her current level of progesterone or estrogen is, I'm going to be there um, to the best of my ability. You know, even now as we're continuing to go through appointments, even if it's, you know, whether it's going for an ultrasound, whether it's going for a blood test, I want to be there by her side. I want to hear everything that she hears um, with the major procedures that you mentioned earlier, Daniel. I, I was not allowed to be in the room at the time when the surgery was going on, but, you know, I, I would sit in there with her before. And as soon as they would call me and allow me to come to the room after I was there, And I think that's one of the things that's so important and so wonderful with our relationship is, you know, I've never felt for a moment like Brittany would not be there for me. And I want her to feel that same way about me. Uh, I don't ever want her to feel like she's by herself. I want to be by her side throughout everything. What you're saying is so powerful. 
when a when a couple goes through this, I think it's so important for the man to take part in the journey and you know to be as actively involved as possible. Go to the appointments, be there for be there for the retrieval, be involved with giving giving your wife, your spouse the, the fertility shots. I mean, there's just so much as a couple that you go through at that point that it's totally worth worth being involved. If you if a man sits the sidelines, I can only imagine how much more difficult it would be. What are what are your thoughts since you had so many losses through this, chemical pregnancies, atopic pregnancies, just doing a transfer and not having a heartbeat? Do you think that in the ultrasounds that it's ethical or that the doctors really should not be showing the heartbeat because so many couples have gone through so many miscarriages and the process of having a child is so hard and devastating that when you go into the room and the first thing you say, is there a heartbeat and showing that? I will, I will say that's a, that definitely takes it to the next level. Um, when you see a heartbeat and you know that your baby is alive and well in your wife and that everything's going good, I, I do believe that makes the miscarriage and the loss that much worse. Um, and we, so that actually led us to, name our two miscarriage babies uh our, our two heartbeat babies as we call them we we now have faith and we have hope uh-huh. um, and it reflected in the pictures that are on both sides of our bed and everything that we can find in scripture um you know if we can find pictures i i, I tell you it it blows me away how many things are introduced into our life now with the words faith and hope now that we have decided to name our two heartbeat babies. And I think if we ever have any doubts before in our faith and our spirituality, I think all that's been erased at this point. Um, But you mentioned the, the ethical nature of showing the heartbeat of not showing the heartbeat. I honestly, I would say I, I would rather see the heartbeat there. And I think it allows me as a, as a man to establish more of a connection with the unborn child than not seeing a heartbeat. And that it could be different for other guys, but there's something about seeing that heartbeat and knowing that your baby and your, your baby's spirit is alive, that it just makes it so much more real. And it, you know, it, it wraps around my heart so much more uh, to see that heartbeat. I'm with you on that. It's interesting. I, at that point, after going through IVF and I always want to know if Brian is their heartbeat, you know, making, <clears throat> making it to that point for me, what you're saying is so true. Right. You see that heartbeat and it's like, okay, now I'm at the next level. It does make sometimes the miscarriage more challenging. But on my, on the other hand, my wife, she can't 
stand looking at at the heartbeat every time is there a heartbeat is there not a heartbeat because there's just so much trauma that was there and, and heartbreak that she's afraid you know i feel like those feelings of a guy of also being afraid you know the two-week wait knowing everything is everything going to be okay and then dealing with the first trimester. there's just so much trauma that goes along with a guy going through IVF and suffering a miscarriage and loss. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how, how, how do you suggest that guys out there deal with this? What type of outlets do you think would work? Is it journaling? Is it, is it uh, going on a hike? Is it praying? I mean, obviously everybody has their own little thing, what type of outlets would you like to see for men going through this? I, th- I think prayer and again, a, a sense of community and a group of people that you have the opportunity to sit down and talk with, whether it's in a virtual or a physical environment. Obviously I think the closer you can get to the real things so. I think physical would be ideal to be able to sit down in a group uh, with other guys and to talk through experiences and to give strategies and, you know, talk through coping mechanisms. I, I think that's ideal because especially in this, you know, in, in the pandemic environment that we've experienced throughout the past couple of years, I think that's made things that much more challenging. You know, how can you, express yourself and establish a sense of community with other people without physically being around them. And I think that's why your support group, Daniel, is is one of the most important things, uh, just being able to reach out and make contact with other people that are going through your situation and to offer prayers and to offer words of encouragement. Um, It is a beautiful thing. And it in addition to prayer i I mean outside spirituality outside of god that that sense of community and talking with other people has been you know right up there is one of the most important things that's helped me through this this entire process yeah it's also difficult sometimes even though talking to friends i don't know what you've felt with your friends a lot of my friends don't know what to say you know, because sometimes it's hard to talk about it because you can feel embarrassed or ashamed about it. But a lot of men and a lot of my friends don't understand what really, what does it mean going through IVF? What does it mean having a miscarriage? It's unfortunately, a lot of people aren't part of that club. I mean, the statistics are one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. One in eight couples struggle with infertility. One in 160 births end in a stillbirth, and one in a thousand babies die of SIDS. So I feel that for a lot of people, it's difficult because they're not in that club. Even though it's so popular, the person to the left, the person to your right could have gone through it. And a lot of people just don't know what to say. And I, again, I think that's one of the most important things about you establishing the type of group you've established and having these outlets in these communities where, you know, like-minded and like experienced people can come together and discuss that type of thing where you can bounce ideas and 
experiences off of people who have gone through or are currently going through the same thing. Um, I think it's much easier to talk about and much easier to offer heart to heart advice when, like you've mentioned, you know, somebody knows what it means to go through infertility and to go through losing a child and to go through miscarriages and all the stresses and challenges that come along with that. Yes. Is there anything like looking back uh, on this experience, is there anything that you had wished that the doctors or the social workers, you know, when you're going into these procedures that they had asked you how you were feeling, how you were doing throughout this process? Like, do you wish that, that, the medical staff had asked you that or given you any resources in terms of how to deal with these issues? Absolutely. Because I, at our previous uh, clinic, I don't, I don't think that's anything that ever came up. I don't think the mental aspect or the community support aspect is something that was ever addressed. Um, I will say at our, our new fertility clinic, the nurse has done a wonderful job of making us feel like we are truly her only patients and the only people that she deals with. And that to me has been, I think the biggest change, the biggest uplift in going from one fertility clinic to another is that sense of caring, that sense of we are focused on your case. We're going to get through this. Um, there's a very personal connection and it is such a blessing. I think it's really important that whatever fertility clinic you're going to, that you have that connection with that doctor, with that nurse, because it is a challenge and it is, and it is a struggle and open lines of communication throughout the process makes it so much easier. Absolutely. Is there any, other thoughts that, you know, you want to leave our listeners to of advice, you know, take, take home message as far as how to cope with this better or what, what we should be doing to help each other through it. Again, I, I would say, listen to who you are as a person and how you need to cope and make sure that others around you understand that. Um, me as a person with my own coping style, I would, I would say the more you're able to reach out and to talk with people about it, the better you'll feel. Um, again, with, with talking about emotions, giving you power over it, it can be hard. It can be a struggle, but to me, talking through experiences and Talking about feelings, regardless of who it's with, just allows me to better process emotions and, you know, to not feel like I need to isolate myself. And I'll tell you also, the more you talk to people, the more you will find that this is less and less of an uncommon thing, that so many other people go through it. Um you know, when I I talked to my manager at work, I, I've talked to so many people about this, but I, I'll say that probably 40 to 50 percent 
of the people that I've talked to either have also gone through this personally in the past or know someone that has. And there's nothing but encouragement. There's nothing but love. There's nothing but, you know, I'll add you to my prayer list. Um, I'll talk to my friend who knows about this and they'll add you to their prayer list. There has been nothing but uplifting, uh, nothing but uplifting thoughts and prayers and a better sense of community that I've gotten by talking to other people. That's, that's incredible. The amount of support you have is phenomenal. I want to join that prayer list because it's really, it's really important for those struggling through these issues. You are absolutely added to it because I'll tell you the it, it feels so much better to pray for other people that are going through your same thing. And it truly gives you a sense of power when you're able to pray for someone else who is going through the same thing that you're going through. Um, it's something, it, there's a feeling that I can't describe that comes from asking for God to find favor with someone else, you know, other than yourself. Obviously you include yourself in your prayers, but praying for others is such a blessing. Absolutely. And there's also a really, you know, a common theme that, that, that comes up through these conversations. And that is, you gotta believe. If you have faith that it'll work, it'll work at some point in, you know, in, in the right time, you just, right. you, you, you gotta believe and, and you gotta just keep pushing through it and talking about it. You, you said it 100%. I think there is a, there is a perfect timing for everything. And I think the only way that you will truly ever lose in the infertility battle is if you quit. Um, and I, I think whatever means that are necessary to go through that battle as I said, in our case, we've been incredibly blessed financially through coverage. But if that's not the case for someone else, I think another means will arise. I think if God plants a desire in your heart, and this is something that uh, Brittany and I listened to other, the other day, we, we listened to you know a, a lot of preaching, a lot of motivational speaking, but you know, there's a verse that says all things work together for good. And so individual times in your life might not feel so good, but you have to take a step back and realize that, you know, your, your life is the sum of all those moments. And if you look at everything together, you know, you, you might not see the, you might not see the main course when you're looking at all the ingredients individually, but Man, does it taste good when it finally gets served? Yes, and that's what we have to hold on to. That that yes, we do. Red, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, to all our listeners out there who are in who are in South Carolina, please reach out to Red. Reach out to myself. We're more than happy to to help you to speak with you. You know, you are not alone. It's absolutely, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for what you do, Daniel, and for, you know, setting up a community like this. I am blessed to be a part of it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 
You've just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.